Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. It's my pleasure uh, to welcome you here to our show. Today is Tuesday, January 17th, and I'm coming to you live from the nation's capital. For those of you who are familiar with The Nonprofit Coach, as you know, you can call in, as the announcer just mentioned, to 347-324-3080. Get an opportunity to ask your question of our page two expert, you can also join us over in the chat room, and for those of you who are super shy, you can email me at tedhart at tedhart.com, and we will ask your question for you when we get to our page two expert. But as always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start off the show with page one news. Follow along with the radio links over at tedhart.com. Click on radio and you'll find highlighted all the best radio links for information in the nonprofit sector. Congratulations to Cecilia Menos, uh, who has been nominated by President Obama uh, to uh, head up one of his top White House jobs, Ms. Menos, uh, who replaces Melody Barnes as the director of the Domestic Policy Council, is an immigration expert who has worked for 20 years at the National Council of La Raza, a Latino advocacy group. So congratulations to one of our very own in the nonprofit sector, becoming one of the top domestic policy advisors in the White House. Next up here on page one news uh, is uh, coming to us from the Craigslist Foundation. Bye-bye to the Craigslist Foundation. Uh, they are closing up shop. They have recently announced that they will be shutting down their doors permanently in March after years of donating to nonprofit funding efforts. In a statement on their website, the organization's president and CEO said that it will be taking lessons learned from its three main initiatives, the nonprofit boot camp, which most folks are familiar with in the nonprofit sector, highly successful, uh, like-minded and alliance building and using them to help others. In the quote, it says, after a decade of innovation in support of stronger nonprofits and communities in the Bay Area and nationwide here on the Nonprofit Coach, we were most involved with the Craigslist Foundation Boot Camp in New York. They will be winding down operations, uh, celebrated success, and transitions programs uh, to new homes. 
Uh, this decision was made by the board and staff after consultation with Craigslist uh, Inc., uh, whose philanthropy is now focused on supporting numerous worthy charities through its charitable fund. Uh, they went on to say that as they wrap this up, the website, which was founded by Craig Newmark in 1995, uh, it will continue to uh, be involved in the nonprofit fundraising efforts. Um, Craig Connects is an offshoot site that works to connect and protect organizations, um, or uh, yeah, uh, to to help organizations who are trying to do good stuff, in the words of Craig Newmark. So uh, goodbye to the Craigslist Foundation. Thank you for all of your support, particularly of smaller nonprofits with very limited budgets. Now, one of the things that we try to do here on the Nonprofit Coach is not only to share the news but give you insights behind the news. Uh, one big topic uh, that comes to us from the Chronicle of Philanthropy is a possible alternative to the .org URL. Um, there are there is a group of folks who are pushing .ngo, supposed to, for a non-governmental organization. Uh, as the article says, the use of .org at the end of a website's address has long been accepted as the online shorthand to identify sites that are operated by nonprofit organizations. Uh, but now the key organization that manages nonprofit addresses wants charities to adopt the suffix NGO. I'm, I'm gathering because they don't have as much control as they would like over .org. It also wants to implement a process that vets organizations to ensure that if you are using NGO, that you are a legitimate charity. Uh, here with us today is Marnie Webb, uh, who is quoted uh, in this uh, article, uh, and she comes to us from one of our favorite organizations, TechSoup, uh, to help us understand all about .ngo. Hello, welcome today on the Nonprofit Coach, Marnie Webb. Hi, how are you? Marnie, thank you so much for joining us again. Of course, uh, we really love and, and encourage all of our listeners to uh, become fully aware of all the offerings at TechSoup Global, which is a nonprofit organization that provides technology consulting to other charities. Uh, but today, you're one of our tech experts to help us understand and sort out .org or .ngo. Well, um, I'm, I'm not sure that... Uh organizations are really going to have to decide between them so much as think about how they will manage a new web address with the .ngo. And I think that there's a lot in preparation for that that um, organizations and people interested in the sector broadly need to think about in terms of what, what makes for a le legitimate NGO. Um, at TechSoup, one of the, the big things that we do is help identify organizations all over the world. And we do this to help process uh, product donations from technology companies like Microsoft and Cisco and Symantec. But we also do it to help uh, illuminate the nonprofit sector worldwide. And one of the things that we found out in that process, and, and as, as most people probably know sort of intuitively, is that what makes an NGO varies from country to country. There are different standards and different ways of identifying organizations. And, of course, there are many, many good efforts that, for whatever reason, don't ever get what, whatever the stamp of legitimacy is in that country, the, the, the legal stamp. So that, that makes them no less worthwhile. So I think that in, in thinking about how a, a, a more closely vetted .NGO works, one really has to think about, um, and we as a sector really have to think about, how will we identify? What rules will we use to say you're a legitimate NGO? We don't want to use necessarily the rules of any one country. We don't want to say, well, we're going to use the standards set forth in the United States. That doesn't, doesn't seem very fair. And, um, you know, and then how will you continue to vet them? Most of us for example, by our domain names three years at a time. We have pretty automatic renewal. But, of course, an NGO can cease to be operating in that time. So how will you do the continuous vetting? Just because somebody was able to, to sort of pass the, the, the whatever the vetting criteria is to receive a .NGO um, suffix for their, their domain does not necessarily mean whenever you, a, a viewer, is looking at it six months, you know, 18 months, 25 months later, that they still are an NGO. So Now, there's so also a lot of money at stake here. Is there, is there now, Marnie, the group that manages .org domain, the public interest registry, they receive uh, about $7.21 each time someone buys 
a year of rights to a .org domain. So if you have all legitimate charities now needing to buy two domains, a .org and a .ngo, you've just about doubled uh, your, uh, your, your registration fees. And with 9 million sites registered at .org, they're getting $65 million in annual revenue uh, for, uh, for nonprofits. So there's a lot of money at stake here. Yeah, sure there is. And and I think that to think that everybody is going to move a .org to a .ngo is probably wrong. There are probably a lot of individuals and organizations that have a .org suffix that just mean to say, I'm not operating this site for profit versus I am a nonprofit. So a lot of them probably wouldn't be wouldn't want to, nor would they be able to make the transition. I think that the well, but then again, what, uh, Marnie, when you're talking about your branding and you're the Red Cross or you're the local soup kitchen and you own the .org and suddenly someone could buy .ngo, uh, you're going to feel a lot of pressure to own that .ngo just oh, in yeah, case. Oh sure, sure, sure. And but I think that's true for most organizations. Large organizations already deal with that with other suffixes. That's not right. That's yeah, not and a, then a lot of folks do own .com and uh, and .org and 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 others. So and what's they, the, and they what's, may own some country suffixes as well. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Now, so what and, do you think the timing of this is? This is all in the hands of the internet internet corporation for assigned names and numbers, or ICANN. Uh, where does this roll out, and what do you think is going to happen here? No, I don't. I don't know what I think is going to happen. I think, to, to me, the bigger issue than the logistics of the money and moving it around, though that's important, is what makes a legitimate NGO, and how do we make sure that it's fairly vetting these organizations? You know, what makes it different from .org? Because if it's not different, then there's no purpose in doing it, right? Um, and so I, I think really, really thinking about how this, um, you know. Uh, how, how this is managed from a, a vetting a vetting perspective is is sort of the first thing to think about, and then how that and, rolls out in terms of money and what individual organizations need to do kind of depends on the answer to that question. Right, and Marnie, that's a bit unclear. There are two groups that are vying for the opportunity to control uh, the the .ngo and public interest registry. Uh, so ICANN is in the process of possibly having uh, multiple applications to see who's going to uh, manage this. And it sounds like from your perspective what hangs in the balance is maybe the most important question, and that is what standards will be used. That, that's, that's exactly right. And I think that that's not just who, who chooses it, but I think it's how it's managed and how the sector is engaged in that right. over time. Um, and presumably and the – the winning group would be the one to set that standard, right? I'm, I'm guessing ICANN is not going to get I, 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 I think if they're doing it well, they're setting the standard with a group of stakeholders that are able to bring a genuinely multinational perspective to the question. Right. And do we know that that's the case, or we're, we're hoping that's the case? Uh, well, I don't think we know anything is the case yet because uh, nobody's right. been selected for it. So, right. Um, uh, you know, I think that we have to advocate for that to be the case, and I think that, you know, whoever owns it, if they want it, if if they want it to truly make a difference, and if you want many of the benefits that would accrue to having a real .dot ngo suffix that was meaningful, they would they would pretty much not have much of a choice, but to do it. Right, right, yeah, because exactly. Otherwise, it wouldn't end up being it wouldn't end up being legitimate, and they'd have sort of paid a lot of money and put themselves in a position for for something that provided no benefit to them or to the sector as a whole. Right, right. Well, it seems that you know in the article that that there's a suggestion that uh, the the application cost of $185,000 would be some sort of impediment, but I would I would doubt that that is for an organization that's making 65 million. Well, I think it depends. I mean, you know, all, all organizations what what that means varies from organization to organization, and where that money goes and 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 how it's managed and what their other programs are. So I would hesitate to say that. I think that it's less an impediment to those organizations that maybe have a uh, recurring recurring revenue in that way, which is probably more important than the fact that they're the, the total dollar amount is is that they get it in small chunks over time, so it's pretty stable is um I think it's you know perhaps an impediment for other organizations being in the conversation. Yeah, exactly. It may just be down to these two. Marnie Webb, yeah. thank you so much for helping us sort this out. I, I do think that 
something uh, of this magnitude is important for nonprofits to be aware of. Uh, certainly, as, as you said, there's very little that is known, but a whole lot that needs to be advocated. Um, the article in the Chronicle Plans B uh, seems to indicate uh, that this is at least a nine-month process, and possibly much longer, uh, due to the fact that there are two competing organizations trying to uh, to push for this. But making sure that charities know that they have .ngo on the radar screen, we of course here at the Nonprofit Coach will do our best to keep people apprised, and we hope that you'll continue to uh, uh, keep us up to date on anything that you may learn regarding .ngo. We will. Thank you, Marnie, from uh, TechSoup Global, one of uh, the top technology experts in the nonprofit sector. Thank you for joining us today on the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. And uh, back here on page one news, of course, the article on the alternative, alternative to .org and say hello to .ngo is available over in the radio links today. Check that out today in the radio links. Uh, next up uh, comes to us is a report that 89% of nonprofits in this new survey uh, are on Facebook. Well, I, I don't think that uh, uh, that would be quite an accurate quote because I, I doubt that of all charities, uh, but certainly those that are in uh, the survey that is uh, being mentioned in the article uh, today, uh, Facebook is not only the most popular commercial social network uh, for nonprofits, but its use is still growing, albeit slowly. On the other hand, although Facebook's growth has slowed since reaching uh, its maximum adoption of nonprofits, uh, the company is still extending its lead uh, over other social networks such as Twitter, LinkedIn, MySpace. So I'm going to take this opportunity to remind all of our, our listeners that we certainly feel that Facebook is important, uh, but for the average charity serious about raising money, uh, we do rank here on the Nonprofit Coach LinkedIn uh, and Twitter to be more important uh, to both marketing and reaching out to high net worth individuals, foundations, and corporations uh, in the social networking field. So those of you who are serious, uh, we think certainly um, Facebook is important to getting your word out, drawing a community, and communicating. Uh, but when it comes time to seriously reach out to uh, major gift support foundations and corporations, uh, we think that you will find uh, that LinkedIn is far more important. But this nonprofit social network report is posted and available over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. Now, who will it be? Who will it be signing up? As uh, our listeners know, over on LinkedIn, we do host the People to People Fundraising LinkedIn group. This is an opportunity for you to connect with other nonprofit professionals around the world, ask questions, and learn from each other. Uh, as of this show, we had uh, 1,498 members, so the question is, who will be the official 1,500th member in the LinkedIn group uh, over at People to People Fundraising? Now, you can go directly to that link at p2pfundraising.org. There's a link to uh, LinkedIn there, or in our newsletter, you can connect there as well. So tell all of your friends, if you're already on the group, see who's going to be the 1,500th uh, member of that LinkedIn group. With that, we're going to wrap up uh, page one uh, today uh, and get right on over to page two. And you know what? We're not going to go right to page two because I made a mistake, and the mistake is uh, actually a fortunate one for you because today we actually welcome a new sponsor uh, to the nonprofit coach. And whenever we have a new sponsor, we always want to make sure that we have the opportunity to talk to one of their, one of their principals as part of page one news. Uh, so just a little extension here of page one news for a moment uh, is to welcome Dodd Caldwell here to the nonprofit coach. He is with our new sponsor, Bell Strike. We're going to have an advertisement uh, posted later to give you even more information. But I'm always curious and like to take the opportunity to say hello and say thank you uh, to our new sponsor. Welcome here to the nonprofit coach, and forgive me for my oversight, Dodd Caldwell. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for uh, for having me on. 
Yeah, so Dodd, uh, again, uh, apologies for rushing off to uh, page two. We've got such a big page two topic today that uh, I allowed my mind to go there. Uh, but that does not mean that uh, the significance of your new service is not one that my listeners uh, should be aware of. So tell us briefly, uh, what is Bell Strike and why is it different? Yeah, absolutely. So Bell Strike is an online service that we developed and uh, launched uh, Right around the start of September, um, it's geared, uh, you know, entirely to nonprofits, specifically smaller nonprofits. Uh, and really, what we let them do is come on and set up a, an attractive online donation website in about one to two minutes. So we wire up uh, all the online donation stuff. We have uh, a blog on there. It's really a full featured website, and we make a lot of the design decisions for them. There is some customization that can be done. Um, but the main goal here is there's a ton of nonprofits out there that are small, um, you know, that are filing 990Ns that have under $50,000 in revenue. They don't have the money to, um, to hire a web designer or web developer, um, or they don't have the know-how, or they have volunteers that have said they do it and flake out. And this is just a, a really easy way for them to get online, a non-tech savvy person, and have a great-looking uh, web presence. So um, our revenue model is structured uh, such that uh, a smaller nonprofit can can really succeed. Uh, so we actually don't charge any sign-up fees, and we don't have any monthly charges. Uh, what we do is we charge uh, 6% on online donations, and we cap that every month at $80 a month. So a nonprofit, basically it's kind of win-win pricing. A nonprofit knows that they're never going to pay more than $80 if they do grow, um, and you know, or they have one month where they have like you know a big fundraising uh, project uh, and raise a ton of money. You know, they aren't paying uh, you know uh, a ton for for those uh, donations. Uh, so that's kind of kind of how we're set up. There's uh, we use WePay, um, which is kind of a PayPal competitor that uh, they actually handle all the online uh, donations. Uh, so everything goes directly to your WePay account, and you can then have that transferred out to either by check, uh, have a physical check sent to your to you, or uh, have that deposited into your your bank account through an ACH transfer. Well, I really appreciate uh, the service that you're providing as I travel around the world. Um, and certainly here in the United States, there are so many small nonprofits that, you know, if they have a website, you know, it, it's probably not very good. Uh was maybe mm-hmm. developed by somebody's nephew five years ago because he was exactly. the only one that knew how to build a website. Um, and the updated uh, capacity of websites is so important for nonprofits to be able to market themselves and be able to get their word out. Now, I, we are going to have more information a little bit later on in the show today, but uh, since uh, it's a big announcement, for you, I do want to give you the opportunity to tell my listeners today yourself uh, about the big $5,000 grant contest uh, that you have going on because that's uh, that's some nice money in somebody's pocket. Yeah, absolutely. So we actually just launched this uh, January 1st, and it'll be running through the first quarter. Um, and really, anybody who has a Bell Strike website, uh, we send out auto receipts and, and things like that. So whenever anybody makes a donation on a Bell Strike website, um, They'll arrive, that donor will arrive at a thank you page. And on the thank you page, it'll, you know, have kind of the normal copy there. Thanks so much for making a donation. Your receipt's been emailed out to you. But we also uh, have a Facebook and a Twitter share button on there. And we also say, hey, would you be willing to vote for us uh, in the $5,000 Bell Strike Grant Contest? And for every share uh, that a nonprofit gets on Facebook and Twitter uh, during the first quarter, their name is actually entered into the pot uh, to win the $5,000 Bell Strike grant. Uh, so a small nonprofit, even if they only have one donation, one share, they still have a chance. Uh, obviously, the more donations and shares you have, the better chance that you have of winning the grant contest. Uh, so, you know, it does give an opportunity. It's not like a, a popularity contest per se, like some of the larger grant contests. But really what it does more than that, and the reason why we designed it this way, is to really encourage uh, donors to share their gifts online because that – uh, you know, whenever they make that share, we fill it in with a link back to the nonprofit's uh, website, and you know, just kind of to spread. The, the goal is just to spread the word, and for a lot of these smaller nonprofits who are uh, really community-based nonprofits, to spread the word about that nonprofit within their communities. 
Well, we certainly appreciate uh, your interest in smaller nonprofits and making sure that they have the uh, up-to-date ca- uh, capacity to compete with larger charities. So thank you, Doug Caldwell, for coming on the show today. Uh, and thank you to Bellstrike for becoming our newest sponsor of the Nonprofit Coach. You have a great day. All right. Thanks so much, Ted. Bye. Great. Now, officially, we are on to page two, and it is my pleasure, uh, since this is such a a very important day, this is the uh, national official public release of the Atlas of Giving 2011 uh, annual giving data report, and uh, what I'm very curious about is the 2012 forecast of giving. Today here on The Nonprofit Coach, it's my pleasure to welcome Rob Mitchell, uh, who has invested 29 years in his career to the nonprofit world as a fundraising practitioner, nonprofit executive, consultant, and now leading two businesses that provide products and services to charities and churches. Uh, Mr. Mitchell is currently CEO of Atlas of Giving uh, in Philanthromax, uh, has uh, proven techniques from American business to create more financial fuel and greater efficiencies for the nonprofit sector. Atlas of Giving is pioneering a major innovation for nonprofits. It measures, analyzes, and forecasts U.S. giving monthly by sector, by source, and by state. In his latest nonprofit staff position, Rob directed the fundraising strategy and activities of America's largest health charity, the American Cancer Society. Welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Rob Mitchell. Ted, good to be with you. Hey, Rob, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Um, I want to really get right into this and uh, start off by uh, thanking you for being here, but tell us what is the Atlas of Giving for uh, those of uh, us, uh, those that are listening today who may not be as familiar with the Atlas of Giving. Sure. Well, the Atlas of Giving is a new technology that allows us, as you said, to measure and forecast charitable giving in the U.S., and we do that uh, each month by sector, so health, education, religion, there are eight sectors that we track, Um, four sources, individuals, foundations, corporations, and bequest, and also by state, and it's all 50 states plus D.C., So this has never been available before. It is a new technology, and I can tell you as a a longtime fundraising practitioner and manager that uh, I wished I'd had this when I was a practitioner. It's it's a real innovation, and it's going to be very exciting to see how today's practitioners use this information to to make their organizations more efficient and uh, more effective in their fundraising efforts. And, and, Rob, this is exciting because um, one of the things that that I think does distinguish professionals uh, from those who are maybe uh, novice in our sector uh, is the need to make decisions and to run our charities on data um, and to make sure that we are constantly aware of what's happening in the marketplace. Now, I think one of the big questions that folks are going to have, so let's just get it right out there, uh, because we are big fans on this uh, on this show of the Giving USA report. It is an important report and sort of is a uh, important bellwether for what's happening in the nonprofit sector. But there are some big differences. Doesn't mean that the Giving USA report isn't still an important aspect of data in our uh, sector. However, uh, the Atlas of Giving is dramatically different in that it offers ongoing updates and information, whereas Giving USA does not. So I, I know there's some other differences, but can you speak to uh, the importance of having ongoing data? Sure. Well, let me let me first say that what your listeners may be interested in is how we developed the technology in the first place. Um, and if I, if I could, I'd like to tell you a story that actually germinated back in 2001, the idea for the Atlas of Giving. I had just, uh, in June of 2001, been, a, been named the first chief development officer of the American Cancer Society. And our fiscal year started September 1, and then September 11th, the world changed for all of us. And at the time... My CEO called me that day and said, what does this mean for our giving? And I said, John, I, I, I can't, I don't know. 
I can't imagine that, but it's not good. I'm just not sure how bad it's going to be and how long it's going to last. Well, <clears throat> flash forward a year later, we had we had outperformed. We thought um, our other other uh, nonprofits in our sector, and uh, we were trying to uh, give our report to the board. And one of the board members asked the question, "Well, how do you know we've done so well?" Uh, as compared with everyone else. And I, I said, well, we've checked with this organization and that organization. He said, well, that's just anecdotal information. Uh, isn't there a benchmark that you can use uh, that, that will let us know how we really performed uh, based on the rest of the country and those charities in our sector? And the truth is there wasn't because there was no timely information or reporting on a monthly basis or even a quarterly basis. All we had at the time was a very good product from Giving USA, but as you well know, it comes out in June of the year following its reporting period. So it's very it's very interesting as a historical document, but uh, in terms of utility, there just wasn't much there. This same board member suggested to me that there were he felt like uh, I should investigate whether there were economic factors that were directly tied to charitable giving and at the time we made a stab at it with my research team at the uh, at the society but uh, got nowhere and so um in 2009 when I started Philanthromax I uh, one of the first things we undertook was looking at could we crack the code? Could we take 42 years worth of annual giving data and link it to specific demographic and economic factors to develop some sort of algorithm, a formula, if you will, for measuring on a, on a more uh, contemporary basis, giving as it occurs, and then hopefully find a way to do a forecast? Well, what we so our hypothesis was that charitable giving is tied to specific economic and demographic factors. So we had a team of 25 PhD-level analysts and researchers who looked at this, and um, they came back, they looked, at, they, they looked at over 70 different variables, and they came back and said, uh, we, we have not seen this great a result before, but compared with 42 years of giving data, we've been able to not only identify uh, that there are specific economic and demographic factors that affect giving, we know what those are, and we've been able to build a formula which will enable you to measure giving as it occurs. And, and so, that was really the key to, to sort of your, your breakthrough on not only being able to look at the data, but, but also... Uh, making it relevant for managers um, is creating this algorithm that was not just based on survey. That's exactly right, and and so the util so in in 2009 we we actually or excuse me in 2010 we actually started um, working with the formula and on an aggregate giving basis for the U.S. The great thing is that the uh, the variables that are actually involved in the national giving formula are just a handful, and all those things are uh, available monthly or quarterly. So we're able to we're able to look at those, build them into the formula, and measure the trajectory and velocity of giving as it occurs. So on a monthly basis and report monthly. So we started giving away essentially the atlas of giving. Um, in 2010, but we weren't completely satisfied because of the good work that had been done before, as you mentioned, by Giving USA, measures by sector and source. Uh, we felt like there were some other things that we could find out, and so we set about to develop the, the formulas for finding what specific economic and demographic factors affect giving in each sector and in each source, and then to that we added geography. We added the states, and we had a similar success. By the way, in our national formula, uh, when checked against 42 years of giving data, our, ours correlates at the rate of 99. Our formula correlates to published giving data 
for 42 years of 99.5%. And we and that's, had. And that's uh, sort of the test, that, that's the test that comes back to you as to whether or not your data is really reliable. That's correct. And, um, and, I, and I'd like to stress this too, because um, as folks look at all the numbers out there, there, there are other indexes, there, there, are, there are other estimates, but uh, the difference that the Atlas provides is that we, we are truly measuring the velocity and the trajectory of giving. So we're looking at the trends. The past is important, only the near distant past. Just as an example, um, we've just been through the Christmas season. Mattel Toys, I'm sure, has already measured what their sales were for December. I don't think that they're going to spend six months analyzing uh, what happened this past December. What they're most interested in is what next December and what next shopping period looks like for Mattel Toys. And similarly, that's what the Atlas of Giving is about. We're about looking ahead. And so um, we're trying to give practitioners, and, and by practitioners, I mean folks who are in fundraising. I mean folks who are in the financial and accounting functions and nonprofits and churches. Um, I mean CEOs and COOs or leaders of organizations. And I mean board members, because the data that we're now providing enables us to measure the perform enables us to measure um, the performance of specific staff members, specific programs, specific appeals based on what they should have done and what they did do. So um, it's it's a new day. And we're also able to we're also we have the technology now and the forecast that enables us to build budgets rather than sticking a wet finger in the air at the beginning of the fiscal year and guessing what charitable giving is going to be for the organization, uh, we now have a forecast. And uh, just to go back, flash back to 2001 for a moment, things were rocking along pretty good for most organizations in 2001 before September 11th happened. And then the world changed. The giving world changed. Um, the great thing about our forecast and our updating of it monthly is that when events happen, disasters, uh, both natural and man-made, uh, tax policy changes, um, a change in government, any, any, sort of, any sort of major events like that, uh, you're looking at a renewed forecast each month. And so you're able to set a, a tighter, better budget at the beginning of your year. And then as changes occur, you're able to make adjustments as they happen based on the information that the Atlas of Giving provides. And that's because you provide data not not only on the the macro level but also on the sector level. Yes, and the state level. And so, you know, as an example, at, at in a large nationwide organization, uh, many of them are broken into geographic divisions, and there's a there's some person who is responsible for fundraising or for income for a certain geographic region. We're providing now the technology for those people to be able to look at the states in their geography and determine, look at a benchmark of how they, how they compare with state benchmarking, and then also look at a forecast for those states. And, and the outcome this past year on the state level was very different. The outcome on the sector level was very different. So, and by the way, there are different economic factors, Ted, that affect uh, giving for education as opposed to giving for health or the arts. There are different demographic factors that affect uh, demographic and economic factors that affect giving for uh, sources of giving, so individuals, corporations, foundations, and bequest. And so we've identified what those factors are definitively. And, and we're now able with our formulas, with our algorithms, to, to measure what giving is and uh, to forecast what giving will be. And, Rob, we're going to just take a, a really quick break here, and then we want to come back and talk more about your algorithm and how you've been able to develop uh, this information and this data for charities. We'll be right back. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. 
If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And as we did on uh, page one news today, we welcomed uh, Dob Caldwell from Bell Strike. And the question is, how many of nonprofit organizations have run into this situation? You need a great-looking, easily updatable website that accepts online donations. Here's the catch. You don't have the time or the know-how to do it yourself, or you don't feel that you have the money to hire a professional or even to find a volunteer that says that they're able uh, to do it without eventually flaking out or possibly leaving your organization. Well, there's a new service that can help, and it's bellstrike.com. Bellstrike lets nonprofits set up attractive, donation-enabled websites in about one to two minutes. You'll have online fundraising, a blog, auto receipts, entry into their $5,000 grant uh, contest that was mentioned today, and a lot more, all for just going to their website. So if you need a new website, you need a well-designed, specifically for nonprofit organizations website, check out Bell Strike. That's B-E-L-L, like the bell, strike, S-T-R-I-K-E dot com. Check out bellstrike.com. We appreciate all of their support here for the nonprofit coach. Now we're going to head right back over to page two. We're here with Rob Mitchell from the Atlas of Giving. Don't forget that you can call in to ask questions at 347-324-3080. You can join us over in the chat room. I see some folks over in the chat room, and you can email us at tedhart.com. Now, Rob, uh, jumping a little bit ahead here, we've got uh, Kathleen emailing in uh, who wants, uh, I think she's a little bit eager here. She's wondering, what is the forecast? So, uh so the forecast for 2012 is that uh, charitable giving will grow 3.9% for a total of almost $360 billion. Now that, that's, a, that's a lot of money, and of course Giving USA has been tracking this uh, $300 billion plus uh, uh, range for, for giving. So you're saying that fundraising is going to grow in 2012, uh, but at the pace of 3.9%. Now, how does that compare uh, to uh, what happened between 2010-2011, that rate of growth? Well, I think this is probably the bigger story. The bigger story is that 2011 was a resurgent year in giving for in the United States on aggregate. Um, contributions totaled. 346 billion, which was a seven and a half percent increase over 2010. Now, that obviously is welcome news for many nonprofits, and but um, the, because of the way nonprofits work, the largesse was not shared by everyone, unfortunately. And, and you so, see that um, at at that micro level. Um, as opposed to just sort of macro national uh, uh, data being put out, you're, you're actually able to see what parts of the country, even by state, uh, by region, uh, are actually doing better philanthropically than others? Yes. And, in fact, um, just one example for you. I mentioned before that uh, giving in different sectors and is is there are different economic and demographic factors that affect different sectors. There are also different economic and demographic factors that affect giving, that are tied to giving by individuals, corporations, foundations, and bequest, and also by state. Well, here's the thing. Um, there were a lot of good signs in the economy. The stock market had a great ride, especially through July. Then, then it started to fluctuate, but the Dow still finished up over 8% for the year. We, we had mediocre uh, – well, we had lackluster growth in the total U.S. economy. I think when the numbers are finally in, it's going to be about one and a half, maybe one, one – at a high of maybe 1.8% for the year. But uh, So charitable giving really outpaced 
uh, overall giving for the United States last year. But there were some dark signs, too. High unemployment is really affecting um, giving, and it's affecting giving disproportionately based on how an organization raises money. So uh, organizations that rely on a large number of gifts from a large number of small donors, those donors are more dramatically impacted by high un- continuing high unemployment. And so they have not fared as well in this uh, giving recovery as some other organizations. Donor advised funds had record years this year. Many universities and colleges had record years in giving this year. Um, but um, those organizations that rely on those small gifts and special event gifts from small donors haven't fared quite as well. And that's that's troubling. And perhaps more troubling is that what we know at the Atlas of Giving is that unemployment has a lasting impact. And intuitively, you can figure this out on your own. When people become reemployed, they have they have credit card bills that they need to pay. They have pent-up demand for maintenance items and replacement on things like cars and household goods. They haven't maybe taken a vacation in a couple of years. So it, it usually takes a reemployed person a couple of years before they get back to their, their former charitable giving habits. And so uh, until, until the unemployment problem is solved, um, and even for a while after that, there are going to be some lingering effects of unemployment. The good news is that we're not in recession. The economy is growing, although at a glacial speed, and that's good. The market is looking good. Consumer confidence is good. There, 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 are, many, uh, there are many bright spots in the economic picture, and, and those things tie well with charitable giving results. But when you're looking at your data, are we seeing uh, continued stress on, let's say, the annual fund uh, and more uh, bright prospects for major gift fundraising? Well, if I was if I was in the practitioner mode today, uh, I would really be looking at my fundraising portfolio balance because one of the things that we've learned from from this past year is that. A balanced portfolio does very well. Now, if you're heavily weighted in the major gift side or even the bequest side this year uh, or this past year, you did you did pretty well. You did very well. Um, so, but but as we've seen this past year, things can be going in opposite directions. And so, bringing some more balance to a fundraising portfolio, I think, is a smart and prudent thing for any practitioner to consider moving forward, because. Uh, if you're reliant specifically on major gifts and campaign kinds of contributions, gifts that people usually give out of assets rather than income, um, while it worked well in 2011, uh, there could come a time when things don't look so good for that group. And so uh, having having a, a broader base of support, I think, is important. That That's that would be my opinion as a practitioner. I see one of the things we see in the forecast for the year, by the way, is that giving to churches and religion is not going to grow nearly as fast as uh, is not projected to grow nearly as fast as as overall giving. In fact, it's less than half. And uh, I, one of the things in considering this, I've thought about, is that I think I think there's there's some room for churches and uh, religious ministries to um, look into the good work that's been done in fundraising by secular nonprofits and incorporate some of those techniques into how they raise money. Um, so so I, that sector you think needs to diversify more. What about the secular uh, groups? What's likely to be in the forecast for them? Well, it's um, it's a mixed bag. Um, education is projected Education is projected to be the leading sector right now for 2012. Um, um, education and the environmental uh, organizations should be up significantly. Our lagging sector is religion. So um, there's some good sectors. There are, if you look at the sources of gifts, the uh, the forecast shows that uh, individual giving should be up 
over 6%, 6.3%. Foundation grants are currently showing to be the, the weakest source for uh, 2012 at 2.2%. At, uh, and do you find that, that that's, uh, that's because of investments possibly being down and, and the corpus of uh, some foundation assets have not rebounded, or is that just a conservative uh, approach on the part of foundation trustees? Well, it all links, Ted, to, the, to, the, to those factors that drive the giving in those sectors and sources. So um, one of the things I'm very excited about, I, I, wish I, could, I wish I had an answer to every question, but this technology is so new that I think, um, I think we're going to learn a lot as we go along and as some academicians in the, in the nonprofit space get to work and do some research on this new data that we now have because I think we're going we're gonna to learn a lot. We're going to learn a lot about how different events in the economy um, affect different things. Um, one of the things, very frankly, that we've learned is that uh, uh, although giving is directly tied to economic and demographic factors, there's also the asking factor. And the more you ask, overall, the more you get. And so a lot of organizations really stepped up their um, solicitation programs this in 2011, and it paid off. So having having a professional approach, which of course having data like yours to back up, not just a, a gut approach to fundraising, but actually uh, putting your your assets where they're they're going to do the most good, uh, continues to pay off for charities who have the foresight to do that. Absolutely, and if you look at as I look at the national forecast, and by the way, our national forecast isn't just in just 3.9 percent for 12 months. We have we actually have the change per month. And as I look at the current forecast, if you're considering a a mailing that you use a large mailing, just as an example, or a special event to take place in October, if you look at the for if, as I look at the forecast, I'm thinking that it makes a lot of sense if you can to move that solicitation up. To September because September as September giving is forecast currently to grow at 7.1 percent October giving 3.3 percent so all things being equal if you're able to move your mailing or your event up a few weeks you'll you should do better is that the second most profitable time to to raise money at year-end still being the largest but what other times of the year is it that September time frame you know, it, it 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 absolutely depends on the economy. And one thing I'll say about year-end giving that that uh, I've I've come to believe as a part of working on the atlas now these last couple of years is that year-end giving, in a sense, has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, it isn't, though. There is some um, sentiment on the part of donors to give at the end of the year. Uh, we we all know from all the studies that have been done that tax motivation for giving is far down the list in terms of what motivates people to give. So it, and such a small percentage of Americans actually uh, itemize deductions and and their charitable deductions. So so that's that's not the big thing driving it. What's happened is people are doing organizations are doing most of their asking in the last quarter of the year. And that that has had an amazing impact, and the fact that the press pumps it up with all sorts of year-end giving stories just perpetuates it. Uh, one of the things I'd like to see is an organization uh, taking a look at a forecast and, and deciding that instead of investing their resources for solicitation at a time when there is the most competition uh, to perhaps delaying it into the next year, and um, and and at a time or at a month that is forecast to do quite well, and and uh, I think they will. But uh, those sorts of results uh, are going to be fun to watch over time. But uh, I think I think the year-end giving phenomenon, while there is some donor sentiment to make gifts at the end of the year, people are buying holiday gifts for family and friends. Uh, and they, it has become traditional, no question about that. 
but uh, most of the asking that or most most organizations are are really doing a lot of solicitation at, at year end, and that drives a lot of the uh, year end giving phenomenon. Now, Rob, looking at 2012, we have uh, uh, major political uh, races in the uh, the United States. Some are predicting that the presidential race alone uh, could cost three billion dollars uh, this year. What kind of drag does that put on philanthropic giving when people are uh, donating so much to their favorite political candidate? Well, if you think of if you think of the forecast of 360 billion dollars, Ted, for 2012. And then you think about uh, as much as five billion, five or six billion being given for political campaigns. And consider this too: much of that money has already been given in 2011, so it's not all going to be given in 2012. In terms of the larger, the the large charitable economy, it's not particularly significant. However, if you if you think about uh, political giving again. There are certain types of organizations with certain profiles of donors that are going to feel the competition from political fundraising more than are others. One of the things we know from studies that have been done is people who lean more conservatively tend to give more, and by some estimates as much as 30% more. So if, if an organization's donor profile leans more on the conservative side I, and and more on the individual giving side rather than, than uh, foundation grants or that sort of thing or major gifts, I think what they're going to they're going to feel more of the pain or more of the competition from political fundraising but in terms of the big picture political fundraising while it has an impact on the charitable giving economy it is it is not um it is not a huge impact it's it's less than 1% so it's it, it so that's not one of the bigger factors that you encourage folks to uh, to take into consideration uh Putting together their 2012 plans. No, no, I'd be uh, I'd be much more concerned about timing issues. I'd be concerned about uh, different sectors and how they are forecast to respond. And by the way, you know there there are the Atlas has the Atlas of Giving has three versions. We have what's called the Atlas of Giving Standard Edition, which is available free at uh, www.atlasofgiving.com with a subscription. Uh, so you just give us your email. There's no credit card or anything involved with that. And, and uh, you can have access every month to the national uh, picture for giving. Now, that does not include sector, source, or state information, but it does include monthly the giving results and forecast. And our, our, second, our second version is what we call Atlas of Giving Professional Edition. Uh, there is a small charge for that. You get uh, 12 months access and you have, well, just uh, as an example, the report that we just posted yesterday is 64 pages of data and an analysis. So uh, we're monitoring giving as it occurs and the, and the events as they unfold that affect charitable giving and we're reporting on those so you as a practitioner can can make some decisions. And then the third version of the Atlas is we have the ability now using the technology that we've developed to develop specific um, benchmarking and forecasting tools for individual nonprofits. So we can look at their giving history and, and then plug in. We can identify what economic and demographic factors affect giving at those organizations and build them a specific model. And so those are the, those are the three things that we have. And, and so anyone can go to the atlasofgiving.com and register for that free subscription or pay uh, a nominal amount for the Atlas Pro, which is a great deal more information by sector, source, and state. Now, Rob, I'm watching our, our time. It's always amazing how, how fast uh, our show uh, goes when we have such fascinating uh, topics. But before, before I let you go, um, I really, first of all, appreciate you using uh, the Nonprofit Coach today to release this very important information, not only the um, a review of giving for 2011, uh, but also your fascinating forecast and insight 
insight into what's going to happen uh, in 2012. Now, you used uh, our format today to uh, to release this information, but you also have a webinar coming up, and you want to tell our our guests about that. Yes, we'll be posting information about a, a webinar that is going to be scheduled for February 1st, and it will be a review, a complete review of 2011 giving results by sector, source, and state, and then a complete look forward into 2012, again, by sector, source, and state on what the forecast uh, shows. And we'll put up the uh, link to the webinar. Ted will send you the link to the webinar so that you could put it on uh, your website, and then we'll have it at the atlasofgiving.com. So atlasofgiving.com for organization uh, and for information on the webinar. Rob, thank you for joining us today here on the Nonprofit Coach. It's been great, Ted. It's been a great pleasure, and thank you. We hope you'll come back. Take care, everybody. We will uh, see you on the next episode of the Nonprofit Coach. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.